Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello there, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to another episode of the Big Sister Hotline with me, your host, Clementine Ford. I'm a little bit emotionally wrecked today because I watched the 10-minute version of All Too Well last night. Taylor Swift, what can I say? You are a genius. Almost no people can say that they've been able to publicly drag an ex who did them very wrong. And yet, you've been able to do it twice now, 10 years apart. What a boss. I I really have nothing more to say except that I feel devastated at all the years that I wasted having so much internalized misogyny about Taylor Swift. She is brilliant and she brings me so much joy. Thank you, Taylor Swift, for being in the world. Something else that really excites me is being able to speak to terribly clever and interesting humans. And I'm very excited to welcome to the hotline today, Laura Naj. Laura is a filmmaker a podcaster, and a story doula who works helping other filmmakers to bring their ideas into fruition. She's also recently made a podcast called Pillow Talk about her journeys into the world of ASMR, and in particular, ASMR as a means of healing from past sexual trauma. And just on that note, I'd like to say that this episode does have a content warning uh, that we will be discussing, not in terribly great depth, but we will be discussing the issue of sexual assault and how one does heal from it. So please go gently and tap out if you need to. Just a quick shout out to my Patreon supporters. You are the ones who help me make this podcast. If you'd like to become a supporter yourself, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford. And also, I'd like to thank all of the wonderful people who have been buying my book, How We Love, which was released last week, and sharing such beautiful words about it. It's, it's truly so affirming as a writer to have released something like this into the world and for it to be met with such joy and such, um, such trust. So thank you all so much. If you would like to buy a copy of How We Love, then you can do so at your local independent bookstore or you can do it online at Booktopia. And if you check the liner notes to this show, I will have a link there for you to do exactly that. But in the meantime, Laura Naj, welcome to the Big Sister Hotline. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So we, we've changed the format slightly and the first little segment that we're doing in this, um, in this podcast now is something to think about. And the idea being that you know, it may not be a, a huge story in the news or it may not be really all that kind of, um, well, for example, one of the topics that I discussed with Karen Pickering was name changes after people get married and why we still largely participate in this patriarchal tradition. And I'm talking obviously marriages between heterosexual or not heterosexual marriages between men and women where we're kind of upholding mm. patriarchal standards. So that was sort of an example of something that, you know, not doing it won't necessarily change the world, but it's just something to think about, something to think about why we do things the way that we do. And you have a topic that you would like to discuss for this week, something to think about. Yeah. I mean, I saw overnight um, a headline this morning was that Portugal has made it illegal for your boss to contact you outside of your working hours, which I think is delicious. 
and um, am very on board with. And I've been thinking about um, those kind of things a lot in the past couple of weeks because I work in the film and television industry. And obviously there's been a lot going on internationally, um, especially with the, the shooting of Helena Hutchins on set on Rust. Um, so that just felt like a really, you know, a really great time to be having conversations like this. Obviously film is a particularly rough industry um, in terms of hours and and safety and, and whatnot. And just, yeah, it just really got me thinking about, you know, I love, I love my job. I love what I do. Um, but I think when you do something that, you know, is in an industry where passion is kind of a prerequisite to, to not even just succeed, but to keep your head above water, um, kind of how important it is to put those, those boundaries in. Mm-hmm. there's always someone lined up to take your job because it's you know the, the idea of particularly like film and television it's glamour meets grit and if you want to be in the film and television industry then you need to be willing to roll up your sleeves and show how committed you are to the cause and and if you're not going to do it then someone else will do it and uh, like in in principle I think it's it's wonderful what's happening in Portugal, but how much does it extend to creative industries or to shift work industries, um, to anything that kind of exists outside of that nine to five scenario? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I do, and we all do. Um, but you know, and then all it takes is for there to be some kind of horrific accident on Mm. set or wherever you work um and you know obviously it really shouldn't come to that like working in um you know I can only speak to my own experience having mostly worked in film and television um I think compared to the states it's it's not as bad here but I've definitely worked on like big American movies in Australia um and they just you know just because you're you're a sweet little rat bag who loves film they ask you to sacrifice your whole life to sacrifice your family or to not have a family like mm. when I, I have a lot more of a balanced life now because I work in development, but when I worked on set, the number of women, when I was, you know, um, you know, 21 years old and a baby assistant director, the number of women that would take me aside and just say like, get out and have a baby or you will never do it. Um, mm. Which was hilarious as a 21 year old with like no sperm donors around. I was like, <laughs> where is this imaginary hypothetical baby? But yeah, it just it really got me thinking about how much um, in in industries where passion is uh, is kind of a prerequisite, how much we sacrifice. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the shooting death of Helena Hutchins because mm. it, it not only was it a terrible tragedy, I mean it's it's really so devastating to think about the impact of that death, mm. not just on Helena and her family, but also the people around, but that it came off or it came in the midst of a lot of um, awareness raising and a lot of activism that's happening in the American film and television industry right now about this very thing, which is yeah. the pressures that are being placed on crew and the unrealistic working hours and the danger that arises because of that. Yeah. I mean, it's just horrendous. And the amount of times I've been on set and a very near accident has happened with a stuntman or you know a camera guy loses his footing and we all kind of hold our breath and luckily I've never personally witnessed anything that horrific I've definitely seen a lot of injury like there's a reason that we have um medics on set and there's a reason that you know I've been on shoots where we've had um ambulances on set on call because it's so high risk which obviously great that that, that's better than not having it um but just yeah, just just the fact that we we constantly on set, we always sort of say to each other, the crew, like we're just making movies, we're just making movies, nobody's curing cancer here. But that comes from the bottom, that comes from the crew, that's that doesn't come from up top. Mm. I was reading actually just yesterday that as they were wrapping up, I mean, obviously the film is the set's been shut down now for Rush, mm. where Helena was shot. Yeah. Um, but I was reading yesterday that one of the crew members has has now also been bitten by a, a spider with a fatal poison and that thankfully they're in hospital but they've had to undergo emergency surgery yeah and one of the problems with this film was that it was non-union mm-hmm. yeah 
I mean, we don't have that kind of specific um, issue here. We, I mean, we do have unions, but in the States, it's like every single department has its own union um, and there's different rules for different, you know, different people. Whereas here we, we kind of have one, one, which is Mia, um, and hopefully everyone plays by the same rules, um, you know. I've worked on sets that have been massive, like huge, you know, Marvel movies, huge amounts of money. And those ones are actually, even though you're working the most hours, the ones where you feel the most safe because, you know, Mm. they just, they put so much safety protocol into that. Um, It is always the ones that don't have enough money, like the the Rust film, I think, you know, you're making it on the smell of an oily rag. And there is some kind of, you're being sold this this narrative that there's a kind of nobility in that and that, you know, they're Mm. the most passionate people, but if if you can't afford if you can't afford to have an onset medic if you can't afford to have someone come in and sweep for snakes like you can't afford to make a movie mm. let's talk about this idea of passion as being fuel for mm. um fuel for work you know and 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 also and almost like passion replacing the need to have a livable wage mm-hmm. or to to work for places that have you know, appropriate on-site safety and that care about overworking their um, their employees, which of course is clearly not just the film and television industry. And and as you said, many films and projects are actually very vigilant about safety mm-hmm. on set. But and, and we know, of course, that there are industrial um, corporations that don't give a shit about their employees and, and that don't also allow them to have workplace safety. But what is... The, Let's talk about how we kind of as a society start to rethink what it means to be in a field in which you're passionate about and in which you have career ambition and yet you're not willing to give up every part of your life for it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and it's almost like an oxymoron. Like you take these people who really care about, you know, for example, art, but you see it in other, you know, in medicine you see it. You take these people who really, really care about what they're doing and then put them in like little, um, you know, compression chambers and Mm. just squeeze the life right out of them. Um, You know, you're not going to get the best out of your crew or your employees, whatever industry you work in, if if you're not letting them go home and and sleep enough at night or like eat enough food or have time to to speak to their, their family or whatever it is. Like I just, I don't understand this idea that you have to squeeze every last bit of mm. serotonin and life out of people to get the best out of them. Mm. Do you think it's a it's a particularly kind of Western construct as well? I mean, obviously mm. there are it's not solely Western. I mean, I know I know that there are other. It's capitalism, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. It's, the, it's a cultural approach to capitalism and to producing the most at the expense of the workers. Um, but it feels like you know, I'm 40 years old and I've been working in the writing industry, however people want to define that for the last 15 years at least. And even now as a freelancer, which I still classify myself as, I still feel that constant pressure to be, it's like the squirrel always in spring preparing Mm -hmm. for the harvest. You know, it's so hard for anyone who works for themselves or who freelances or who is in the gig economy now, which of course is most people who work in creative industries it's so hard for us to oh it's so hard for us to be in the creative industries (laughs) that's not what I'm saying but it's really hard when you kind of are enculturated into that idea of constant constantly being there for your employer Mm. or for for anyone who's willing to hire you because you're so worried that if you say no to anything that you'll have to start saying no to everything because nothing will be coming your way Mm. Yeah, and I think that's really compounded by the the kind of pressure to remain very active on, say, social media, mm. um, you know, and I'm terrible at that. Like I post on my Instagram like once every few months or whatever. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, there can be almost a danger is a bit of a strong word, but you, you kind of get a bit obsessed with creating content rather than mm. creating your art. Um mm. I guess it's just, you know, as soon as you commodify any kind of art or commodify, you know, critical thinking or, or anything like that, um, yeah, it, it, it gets sort of squished or thinned out by the, the capitalist machine. There's a lot of posts that I've seen, particularly through the pandemic, and I don't know if it's just because I'm changing the kinds of people and places that I 
whose work I follow, mm. or if it's just been it's been something that's kind of been brought on by the pandemic. I suspect it's a little bit of both, to be honest. But the idea that somehow, you know, for a long time we laboured under this idea that if you were good at something or if you were passionate about something, whether or not that's art or writing or filmmaking or, or you know, I don't know, being a carpenter or being yeah. a doctor, whatever it is, that if you were passionate about something that you had to somehow find a way to monetize it, that we live yeah. in a, in a, as part of that kind of capitalist framework that we live in, there is this idea that we're starting to resist now that things only have value if you can profit from them, which of course yeah. then runs the risk of sapping all of the joy out of doing it in the first place. Do you feel any of that pressure at all as a filmmaker? I know, I know you said oh, that you work mostly in development now, but. Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, the good thing about working in development, and, and I'm kind of, um, I guess, saved from the gig economy because I have, you know, I have a salary job. I work in an office. I work Monday to Friday. I always know I have a salary coming in, which is a blessing and a curse because it means that I'm never chasing jobs. I'm never, I'm never wondering when, you know, I'm going to pay my rent, but it also means I can only do my own personal work at, you know, after 6pm or whatever. So I'm constantly working like everyone mm. is. Mm. Um, I think that, um, yeah, so I definitely, I definitely feel that because I spend, I spend most of my day, um, you know, kind of being a bit of a story dueler and, and helping other people birth their, you know, birth stories. Um, and sometimes I'm working with people who, who love the thing they're working on. Sometimes working with people who, you know, we're working on a show and we're all like, what is, what is this show? Um, I also think not only is there pressure to to monetize what we're passionate about, but there's also pressure to be like good at everything that you enjoy, um, or being like the best at it that you that you possibly can. Whereas you know, I'm kind of really getting into, and this is maybe being a pandemic thing too, um, just doing things because they're fun. Even if I, like I'm, I love singing, I, I can't sing for shit. I love doing it. I'm not trying to be the best one at it. Um, yeah. So yeah, I like yeah. It's it's that definitely feels like a really unnecessary pressure. That's just you know, is there to sap joy out of things? Laura, what, what advice? Having said all of that, and having talked about the massive drain on time and the commitment that is required to be part of these industries, what advice would you give to anyone, particularly young women who are aspiring aspiring to a career in film and television? Or who want to be writers? I mean, you're a story dueler now for scripts and and for story development. Um, what what should people be prepared for? Quit? No, don't. Um, I mean, <laughs> I think. Um, I mean, it's it's such it's such like wishy washy advice to to have. Um, but I think it's you know in general just just advice that we should all especially as women or young women um, be taking on is sort of learning how to hold boundaries and learning that um, actually saying yes to everything as much as, you know, half the time that will give you extraordinary opportunities. Um, you kind of have to learn when saying yes to, to certain things is actually to your detriment, either to your mental health or your physical health, but also just to your career. Like you can't possibly keep every plate spinning in the air at once mm. it's not humanly possible um and I, I say this like giving advice of something that I'm really terrible at myself but I'm trying to be better at at identifying where um what I actually am passionate about and what like what are the projects you know if you're going to write something you just wrote a book right like if you're going to be writing <laughs> a book you're going to be doing that for years so <laughs> is, is mm. this the thing that you can stand basically to, to spend you know the next two or three years of your life on um and if it's yes that's the thing you, you should be doing and if if that that feeling fills you with dread then and and you're in a mm. position to say no because I understand a lot of the time it's financial right like you have to pay the rent um but that's what I'm trying to be better at Now we come to the middle and meaty section of the show where we talk about something at an even greater depth than that which we discussed Hollywood celebrities in the prior segment. Uh, Laura, I would like to talk to you about your Audible podcast, Pillow Talk. 
but I, I'm not going to describe it. You describe <laughs> it. So um, Pillow Talk is an eight by half hour memoir series for Audible Original. So it's my memoir. Um, and it's about um, a time when I fell into um, this sort of online world of ASMR relationship role plays. So basically it's about um, a time when I felt very lonely and kind of broken, to be honest, um, and was having a hard time sort of connecting people with people in real life. And I, I got really obsessed with this very, very, very niche corner of the internet um, where via ASMR people would pretend to um, be your your partner or your best friend or your therapist or whatever. Um, and hold up, <laughs> let's go back and explain what ASMR okay. is because I'm an, I'm a big ASMR fan, but I'm aware that not everyone will know what it means. So ASMR stands for Autosensory Meridian Response. That's right. And can you describe? what that feels like sure. and what the purpose of it is. So most people describe um, ASMR as a, a physical sensation that's kind of like a tingly feeling at the top of your head um, and it's also accompanied by a, just a sort of general feeling of relaxation and euphoria. So it, it's, a, it's a physical response to certain auditory uh, and sometimes visual stimuli but it's equally um, an internet phenomenon. So, you know, maybe about seven years ago, someone on some um, health discussion forum online was like, does anyone, does anyone else get this, this weird feeling when you listen to someone whisper? And um, it turned out that millions of people did, which I really love because to me that says that there's a lot that we are all experiencing, that, that there's these common human experiences that we're just not talking to each other about and it makes you really curious about mm. what else there is. Um, and since then there's... There's been a massive boom um, online. So on YouTube, you can find literally thousands and thousands of videos um, of people trying to stimulate the, the feeling of ASMR in, in viewers. So that can be stuff like, you know, videos of people just whispering nice things or tapping very slowly on, you know, everyday household objects or brushing hair. Um, so that's that's what ASMR is. When did you first discover ASMR? And did it happen before or after you you realised you had it, ASMR? Because for me, uh, finding out about ASMR was exactly that experience that you kind of described. Wow, all these other people feel this way. I used to get it when, um, or, or my first kind of inkling of it was that when I watched people writing on a notepad in front of me, like even, even at an appointment or something like that, if they scribbled down an appointment card for me, I would get that tingles in the back of my neck. Mm. Um, or watching people paint always gives it to me. Anything that involves a delicacy of hand movements and a careful precision. Mm. But it has to, sort of, like I do get it from watching the videos online, but I get it much more strongly when I watch it right in front of me. Or um, sometimes on the mall there will be a busker that does that thing with like the David Bowie labyrinth balls, oh, yeah, crystal yeah. balls kind of thing. That gives me strong ASMR. Oh, wow. And I also really like the tapping. Um, tapping, mm, I don't know no, if people I can hear this, but oh, yeah. when people sort of go over the microphone um, and whisper in <laughs> sake. That's probably turned, made a lot of people turn off because some people don't like ASMR. <laughs> but I loved all of that and I didn't really realise that other people had it and then I somehow, I think I read an article about ASMR probably about four or five years ago and I was like, ah, mm. that's me, I've got that. So what was the process like for you? I mean, I used to get it when I was little um, and I, I, the, the, the thing I really remember was my dad, my dad's a carpenter and he's got like really rough hands that are always, you know, calloused. Um, and he would always, before bed, like brush my hair and, and braid it because I liked having like curly hair. And I think actually I just liked it. I said I liked having curly hair because then my dad would plait my hair at night. Um, and yeah, it was just like this really, these really special moments between us where, mm. you know, we wouldn't talk and I would just hear like his rough hands in my hair and I would just deeply, deeply relax. And then mm. I think, you know, the older you get, the less um, physical touch you, you tend to have. And it's probably, you know, that's much more um, compounded for, for boys and for men, I think. But mm. I would then only get it with like romantic partners when they would, you know, whisper to me in bed or, you know, gently touch my hand or something like that. Um, 
And then as far as ASMR, the sort of internet phenomenon, that's that's really how I fell into it. I was going through a breakup and felt very lonely um, but kind of didn't want to, I guess, burden anyone in real life with, you know, asking for a hug. Like for some reason that just felt so incredibly um, vulnerable and embarrassing. So that's, yeah, I kind of turned <laughs> to the internet mm-hmm. to, to kind of stop that gap. Mm. One of the things that you used to do was go to sleep listening to a very particular kind of ASMR whisper video or audio. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so I, I fell into um, this sort of subgenre of ASMR called uh, boyfriend experience role plays or, or girlfriend experience role plays. They're, they're basically um, videos and audios where the, the performer will pretend to be your intimate partner and they'll it's sort of like a one-sided recording of a of of pillow talk. Um, so mm. you know you <laughs> you put it on when you go to sleep, and and somebody will just like ask about your day very gently, or tell you that they love you, um, play with your hair, and then the video just turns into them falling asleep. So it would be like ten hours of like a man or a woman just gently breathing. So you can kind of, especially if the lights turned out, like it really tricks your brain into into feeling like there's someone really there who who cares about you. Sometimes ASMR can be sexual, mm-hmm. but I think people unfamiliar with ASMR make the mistake of thinking it, it is by virtue of it being whispering a lot. I mean, not all ASMR was, is whispering, but if there's talking, then it tends to be whispering. And, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend role plays like this, that it's somehow, and I, I'm using the air quotes around this, perverted in some way, when actually it's, for a lot of people, ASMR is an extremely, again, air quotes, innocent kind of experience. Mm. Yeah, and, um, that you know, that that's a quick way to get um, ASMR people very upset because for most people it's the total opposite experience like it puts them into this very um childlike feeling of 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 safety and comfort and most people in when they're in a childlike headspace do not feel sexual at all um Mm. of course though it's on the internet and everything on the internet has a porn version of it um so there is this kind of again, a sub-genre of ASMR, which is erotic ASMR, and that's that's huge online. So that's um, basically the same thing, people pretending to be your your intimate partner, but they'll be acting out sexual scenarios. And because it's ASMR, it's mm-hmm. like all the sound design is there. Mm. I'm really curious about, because I, as someone who frequently, I mean, I go to sleep listening to ASMR most nights, mm. um, I like, there's a woman called Whispers Red who's very popular and I, I like to her. listen to her talk about, but she's so yeah, great. Ma. Yeah, <laughs> and she, she's she got this lovely English accent and there's this one in particular where it's, um she's role-playing being in, checking you into a sleep clinic mm. and and it's just, you're just listening to her tap away. I mean, it's just very mundane kind of scenarios, but as you are falling asleep, it, a good ASMR artist has the ability to make you feel, as you said, childlike and safe mm. and warm again and like you like you don't have to worry about anything. I hadn't, though, heard of the role play, like the boyfriend-girlfriend role plays. Of course, I'm not surprised that they exist, but it hadn't even occurred to me to look one of them up, I guess. But thinking about you talking about it and you said that you turned to them after you went through a breakup and you, you were in need of intimacy but you were feeling too vulnerable to... And also, I mean, you you leap out of one relationship and you don't necessarily want to have someone else there, but you do want to replicate some of the safety that you felt in that relationship. Mm. But it feels like these kinds of ASMR would be incredibly profoundly important for people who are lonely and who maybe, as you said, have been untouched sometimes for years by another human. Yeah, and they really, you know, in... Um... In, in making the podcast, like I, I'm a very genuine fan and was already embedded in the community, but obviously making a, a podcast about it, I got to speak to people with so many different kinds of experiences and they really run the gamut. So there's um, a lot of like, you know, young adults there who've never had a boyfriend, never had a, a partner, mm. who are virgins maybe, I hate that word, but, you know, haven't haven't had sex yet um, and they want to, to kind of 
you know, see what it, it would be like, but that they're maybe not ready to to actually do it with someone physically yet. Mm. So there's, there's lots of those, for example, like, you know, your first time. And because it's it's scripted, it's like the best possible version of that. So you can you can mm. literally, and there's lots of people doing that, um, you could write a script of exactly how you wanted a sexual encounter to go and then you can commission your favourite boyfriend or girlfriend experience artist to record that. Um, there's also people who, you know, I, I spoke to a lot of men who, um, uh, you know, they're widowers, they've recently lost their wives or men who are like deployed overseas, um, mm. people with, you know, a- any kind of hang up really that you can think of that makes them a bit wary of um, physical intimacy that, that still kind of want to role play um, what that would be like. Mm. One of the things that you have looked at is, you know, how this kind of ASMR experience can also be a way for survivors of sexual trauma to explore consent or to to feel, to, to basically find some kind of healing in consent role play. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that was, for me personally, um, kind of the, the most profound thing. And I just kind of stumbled you know, upon it, I, you know, was very sort of innocently watching ASMR, um, just to get to sleep and found, um, you know, hundreds of, of audios where that was sort of tagged with, with consent. Um, and it really threw me, um, how much, how big my emotional reaction was to them. And, and they're things that, that should just be really, you know, given in any sexual encounter where the person is, um, you know, asking if you're okay, they're checking in, they're, every time the sexual act maybe changes, they, they check that that's okay. Um, there's even um, audios where in the role play you're, say, kissing someone for the first time and they sort of notice that you're you're pulling away or you're not giving them eye contact and they stop and check in and all these kinds of things mm. that, um, yeah, that I, I had this huge emotional reaction to and kind of forced me to, to look at experiences where, you know, that hadn't been the case. Mm. Which I would say is, um, you know, common for so many mm. of us to some degree whether or not you know um even even in really minor ways like sometimes i imagine that someone having that experience of listening to these role plays say may there may be people who think to themselves oh i never really thought that any of the experiences i had were non-consensual mm. and maybe they maybe they weren't non-consensual but they weren't actively enthusiastic either yes yeah and i think especially um i mean you know you can find audio porn for any any experience or um you know it, it they cater to all genders for example um but i think particularly ones that are men like cis men speaking to cis women or um you know more heterosexual in, encounters that was so much more profound because it's it's mm. I, you know, there's this idea that consent isn't sexy, especially um, especially when when you're maybe oh making God, sex like with men. ruin the mood. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually like hot. It shouldn't even be hot. It should just be like you know normal. It should just be normal. But it is it is a really interesting reflection of of the disconnect people have between sexual performance and sexual experience. Yes. You know that most people, not most, but I, could, I don't know that I can say most people, but I think a lot of people don't experience sex as something that is a communication Mm. with another person, but they perform sex in the way that they think that person wants to experience Mm. it. And maybe, and and also sometimes how they want to experience it, which is with disregard for the other person in the equation. Mm. So let's just go back and talk about how, I mean, you started listening to ASMR to Mm. kind of cope with this experience of, you know, going through a breakup and you found a real resonance with what it was you needed and and I guess you were able to control the emotional connection that you were having there in a way that was very meaningful to you post-breakup and also meaningful in some of the, the things that you were learning about maybe some of your past experiences. But what was the process of taking it from experience to audible and producing a podcast on it? 
I mean, it's just, I don't know if you like this, but as a, as a writer, I'm just, I guess, programmed to go, oh my God, there's such a story here. Um, so it, it was funny. There was like one part of my brain that was just so in it and having this really profound, really emotional experience. And this other part of my brain that was almost dissociating going, oh, this would be a great podcast. Mm. So it, it's, it's kind of a funny one because, um, the the story you know as it unfolds in 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 the podcast has a lot of twists and turns that I didn't see coming because I was making it sort of as I was processing everything which you know on reflection don't know if I'd do that again um in in some ways I think it makes it a lot more raw and a lot more real and a lot more vulnerable but it was almost like I experienced these big things go home write about it by the time I've recorded it everything's changed Mm. um well, without giving yeah. too much about the, you know, the arc of the podcast away, mm. can you give an example of what something was that surprised you about making it? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the biggest one is, um, you know, getting getting really in, into those consent role plays and mm. that kind of cracked open, you know, as we've been saying, a lot of experiences that I've had, but it also... Um, like when, when I first started, ex- you know, having those experiences with, with the consent role plays, I, I was more sort of looking at it as a way to almost diagnose what kind of went wrong or what why something felt wrong. But I, I didn't really realize until I started dating again that they were actually really positively influencing, mm. you know, how I interacted with people and that they really kind of raised the bar of what I was willing to accept. Mm. Um so in in a way, there were kind of these like sexual role models that I I sort of never knew that I needed. What's it made you feel about? I guess uh, the lack of education that I mean, you and I seem to be of sort of similar generation. How old are you now? I'm 32. All right, so I'm actually older than you by quite a bit. Um, <laughs> but I'm you know we, I would say that we're still part of the same generation where consent certainly wasn't discussed as a means of mm. sex, sex education. Um, and it's really still been a very recent conversation in terms of complexity as well. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, I've, I've recently been looking at sex parties. I've never done a sex party before, but there's one in particular that I've been looking at maybe going to partly because I'm curious, but also partly because, similarly to you maybe I have a niggling sense that there are different issues for me but just an inability to really kind of experience sexual intimacy with people because of you know insecurities but also vulnerabilities the fear of what it really means to let your boundaries down and to Mm. and to become fully I guess vulnerable in a situation um, and so I'm curious about whether or not exploring some of these groups and some of these environments that, and the one in, that I'm looking at in particular has very strict consent laws or consent, consent parameters, whether or not that will have a impact on my own sexual intimacy and my own ability to express mm-hmm. myself that feels very liberating. I suspect it will in some way, whether or not that involves me actually participating, which you're not required to in these groups. Um, but one of the things that I'm really interested in, which they do offer as separate to even coming to one of the the play parties is a consent workshop where you sit around with a group of other people and you, you can be partnered with someone who you don't know, or maybe you've gone with a partner that day, or you've gone with a friend and you can be partnered with them, but where you explore those boundaries of consent in a non-sexual way by Mm. making yourself vulnerable, vulnerable in this group. But, um, I guess really tapping into the ability to speak up and express what you want. And and I read some of the testimonials from people who've attended who said that they didn't expect to get out of the consent workshops what they did because they assumed they knew everything about consent. And I feel like I have a very theoretical understanding of consent and I mm. obviously practice it in my life. But am I really able to address and connect with it on that deep psychological level which it seems like maybe that's something you did get from this experience on and you weren't prepared for it I mean yeah you weren't you weren't expecting it yeah both um and I think that there's an extra level of um 
like almost protection or armor in that I think it maybe it will bring up similar experiences going to, um, you know, a sex party or to sex workshops in, you know, things that you can experience in, you know, audio erotica, but that there's an extra level of, you know, it's completely anonymous. Mm. So I could be alone in my room. There's, I, I feel like there's someone there having this really profound sexual experience with me, but, but there's not. Mm. So it was just the safest possible way to explore for me, for me to like dip a toe in the water of like, okay, what would it, what would my ideal sexual experience look like, and not have to worry about, um, you know, silly things like, you know, insecurities about how I look or that I'm doing things the right way, or, mm. um, you know, I, I don't have to feel embarrassed about if I start crying because that was a big thing that I would just like have these like emotional cataclysms listening to mm. these audios because they would just, you know, really crack me open, and the fact that. I could just turn it off at any time was was really appealing and mm. and because it was all pre-recorded there was no one on the other end that I could disappoint or or make angry or you know all those kinds of things that people I think especially young women um worry about you don't have to protect anyone mm. else's feelings you can just show up and work through your stuff and and once I got through that first like sort of layer of like okay this is what respectful consent-based sex feels like and that's not to say I've never experienced that Mm. but you know when when you've had experiences that aren't like that they tend to overshadow everything else Mm. um then I could get this other layer of being like okay what would like pleasure look like not just feeling safe but and I so I feel like that's kind of the next step in in sex education like you know I wish I grew up with with you know consent it was a conversation in sex education but consent was basically like don't drag anyone in an alley there was no complexity to it and now I feel like you know kids learning like your your pleasure is actually important Mm. you know that's why we're all here yeah I'm really interested in this because uh and sometimes I worry that I might be a bit of a fuddy-duddy but then I think well that's probably also uh, I'm internalizing some of that self-doubt and self-critique that comes from living in a culture where Consent is sort of acknowledged, but also pleasure is very confused. Um, mm. And I worry that I, I think I'm a very sex positive person, but I worry that in some of the critique that I have of sexual politics and sexual interplay, that what is being perceived as a sex negativity, and I'm sure it is by some people, but I think that we don't really have enough complex conversations about what pleasure, particularly for women who've been socialized by culture to to be performers Mm. um it's curious to me that and I've had this discussion with a lot of different people I'm really interested in your thoughts on it that some men I know who sleep with women say that they want to have more involved conversations about consent in the moment but when they Mm. say for example and this isn't everyone this is just an example that I'm using but when for example they may have said do you like that or are you enjoying that or can I touch you here or whatever script we're told that we should be incorporating into consent discussions without acknowledging that actually a lot of these conversations happen before you take your clothes off, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That they're met with sort of resistance and sometimes almost thinly veiled disgust from the women that they might be sleeping with who the women feel like you're ruining the mood or you're taking me out of it. And my kind of assessment of that is that in in many cases, maybe not all, but in many cases what's happening is that women who have sex with men and who have been socialised as performers for men are comfortable in what that means because they know how to act sexually mm-hmm. and it doesn't really have anything to do with pleasure and nor is it kind of meant to in some of these circumstances, which is why if women masturbate by themselves, for example, they might be a lot quieter than they are normally if they're having sex with another person or they might just lie there very still because for a lot of us we need to repeat the same action over and over and over in order to achieve Mm. climax but that doesn't feel exciting in sex and we've been taught certainly that it doesn't look exciting and it's not exciting for your partner so the uh, there is this disconnect I think in some people when they're having sex between what the purpose of the sex is so the sex by Mm -hmm. themselves may be to actually physically enjoy it and, ach- and achieve some kind of communion with themselves and the sex with another person is to enjoy it because you've made them come or you've 
like performed well. Yeah, yeah. And I've I've definitely um, had that experience where uh, a man I've been having sex with has said something like, is it okay if I do this or whatever consenty thing they said. And as much as I, um, you know, in my politics will preach that I, I really want that, in the moment I hated it. Mm. And at the moment I might have thought, oh, this actually isn't as sexy as I, I want it to be. But on reflection, what it actually was is like not being used to having genuine attention and that person genuinely seeing you. It was mm. like this extra layer of vulnerability. Like they're seeing past like the, the, the sounds that you're making that you've maybe seen in porn that you think mm. are the sounds men want you to, you know, to make or whatever position you've contorted yourself into and they're actually seeing you. For me personally, that that's really what threw me. And mm. I think that that's just, you know, something that I have to unlearn. Yeah, and I think it is a process of unlearning. I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to think of whether or not I behave differently having sex with women than having sex with mm. men. And I think that there, there may be some differences, but I, I wonder how much it's kind of all wrapped up in a sense of performance and yeah. we're sort of voyeuristically watching ourselves have sex when we're with someone else, regardless of, of who they are. Yeah. And part of that, part of those consent conversations and part of what interests me, like I said about this sex party stuff and, and maybe I'll go and start listening to these particular consent role plays in ASMR as well, mm. is that it, it does kind of, it, it, it introduces the concept of consent and pleasure and boundaries in a non-sexual way that I think actually we aren't aware of how deeply uncomfortable it is to have those conversations generally, even Mm. outside of sex. Oh yeah. I even hate when people ask me what I want to have for dinner, you know, I'm like, you you know, you decide. Don't make me choose for us. (laughs) It's deeply uncomfortable. And I think, you know, with me listening to these audios, there's, um, you know, kind of, it's almost an oxymoron because you, you really feel like you're being heard and seen, but you're not. Mm. Um, and you feel like you're having these really genuine conversations, but you're not. It's pre-recorded. Sometimes you've literally scripted it, like you're putting words in someone's mouth. And it's a lot harder, like when you're, when you're really with a person and everything's fallen away. I think the, the biggest thing I learnt uh, listening to them for me personally, like the idea of bad sex, it, it doesn't exist as long as you're genuinely really listening to each other. Mm. And yeah. that's something else that can be really beautiful about those, um, you know, if you listen to the right the right ones in audio erotica, like they're nothing like conventional pornography a lot of the time. Like in a lot of them, the, you know, the man loses his erection and the rest of the audio is you just like giggling and watching a movie and, you know, mm. you know, or, or talking about it and, and holding space for them. Um, mm. Or like, you know, you laugh or someone farts or whatever it is. And that's just, it's considered as um, normal and sacred and loving as anything else that happens sexually. Mm. Did you, so you don't really listen as much to these this particular genre anymore, although you do still mm. listen to ASMR. Have you found that now that you've gone back to your, your sort of dating again um, and when you when you began dating again that it was like what was the experience of that like? Did when you when you first, if it's not too much to ask, when you first had oh, sex with another partner after this experience, mm. were you able to apply what you learned from going through yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it made me also a better listener. Like I'm talking about this a lot, like men need to listen more. It made me really listen to people a lot more and check in on them and what they want and what pleases them and what their boundaries are mm. a lot more. Um, and and also just, you know, feels feels better. Like the, the audios are great but they're not real. Mm. Like they, they give you this sort of false feeling of, of connection but it, it's, you know, you're not connecting with anyone. Mm. Um, but it definitely like there, there were times when, you know, I had like a really lackluster date or a sexual experience that wasn't, you know, my favorite sexual experience of all time. And I was like, this would never happen, you know, on my like, <laughs> fantasy audience. <laughs> but that's the point is that sometimes it does happen. And, and I really like yeah. the point that you made about, you know, bad sex 
there's no such thing as bad sex provided people are communicating. There is sex that can be mm. awkward and that can be physically unsatisfying or that can be disappointing even in some way. But provided yeah. you keep those lines of communication open with the person that you're with and that there is that respect there, it doesn't mm. matter if you see them once or if you see them a thousand times. The experience yeah. itself will be good. We need to really move away from this idea that sex and the the orgasm itself and particularly if you're having sex with men that his orgasm is mm. the goal and that that's that's what qualifies as good decent sex if you know wow it was so wild and he he came tons yeah <laughs> yum <laughs> yeah and actually you know some of my um some of the sex that I've had that I would qualify as like the best sex I've ever had I didn't come at all or they mm. didn't come at all. And, you know, like that's not the be all and end all. And sometimes the the moments that I look back on, again, the best sex I've ever had has actually been because I just felt very present or I felt very respected or like we had a, we laughed a lot or whatever it was. Mm. Um, obviously like love and orgasm, that's all great, but it's, we're obsessed with it and it's ridiculous because it's really just a few seconds of a sexual experience. Mm. Yeah, and yet we place so much importance on it and so mm. little importance on any of the communication that happens around it. Yeah. Laura, your podcast is called Pillow Talk. It's on Audible and it's available now, correct? That's correct. So people can go and listen to that. Just before we finish this segment off, is there anything else that you, I guess, would love to say to people who are intrigued by what it is that, I mean, who may, like me, have never heard of these consent ASMRs or or perhaps think that even for themselves that it could be something really beneficial for them to work through their own yeah. healing process. I mean, I would say one, go in with an open mind because it's if you've never um, listened to or watched ASMR before, it's going to be really funny because it, it is for the first mm. bit. It's just like it's very silly watching someone, you know, whisper um, into a microphone somewhere across the world. Um, but I think that if there's something that, that you find difficult in relationships or you find difficult in sexual encounters, you will probably find someone who addresses that um, on these mm. forums. And if you can't find it, you can request it. You can literally go and write a script um, of what you wish you heard from a lover and, and somebody will record it for you. Mm. Or you can record your own. Mm. <laughs> Lauren Arch, before we finish this episode of the Big Sister Hotline, I want to ask you, what is it that's bringing you joy? It can be a TV show, it can be a book, it can be a song, it can be a moment that you've witnessed, something that has brought you joy either this week or just generally in your life. So having just um, released a big project, I don't know if you have this experience as well. And actually, this is probably very bad for me to admit as a television producer, but I've just been re-watching like shows from the 90s. All I think it's great. Like, it's research. Month. Yeah, it's research. Like I re-watched all of ER. I re-watched like all of Law and Order. Do you ever get to that point where you're like, I cannot take in any new information? Mm. I just, I can't take surprises. I can't take suspense. We have to watch procedural yeah. stuff that, like, it doesn't yeah. matter if you skip an episode as well. It's just – and also our, our attention – I really relate so strongly to this. Our attention spans are so short now that we kind mm. of need – and also coming through the pandemic, there there is a need for familiarity and to, like, sit on the couch mm. and be wrapped up in a warm blanket. For me, a lot of these 90s shows are very problematic in lots of ways or we mm -hmm. we are aware by re-watching them just how – much things have changed which can actually be really reassuring in some ways but I also recently re-watched for like the millionth time all of the seasons of Buffy and I had the same experience of just like I don't need to think about this I yeah. just I just can watch it and I can appreciate it for what it is yeah and also just the comfort of you know ER is the one I've been watching a lot of and like you say in a lot of ways it's really problematic and in a lot of ways it was actually very progressive, you know, for its time, mm. like all those shows were. But just also the comfort of like the 90s aesthetic, like it feels like and and it like it accesses these core memories of like a mm. show I used to fall asleep to when I was a kid. 
It's very mm. comforting. It's so funny and, you know, younger listeners probably won't be aware of this at all because they were, if if not not even born yet in the 90s, mm. certainly small, like too small to really be watching grown-up shows. But yeah. it's so funny even when you go back and you look at the credits of 90s oh, yeah. shows and sometimes um, – like I remember when uh, some very clever people a few years ago redid the Game of Thrones credits as if the show had been made in the 90s and it was all kind of like. So good. Yeah, very like Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman and it's yeah. just, it is, there is something really nostalgic that pokes at that those kind of nostalgic corners of our brain of looking at a time when you're like it's pre-social media, you could go home from school and no one would like bully you online. Yeah. Um, you could sit there and eat, you know, a Pop-Tart in front of the TV and watch Neighbours or, you know, Degrassi or Heartbreak High and then at night time Dawson's Creek would come on and ER, maybe mm. Buffy if you were lucky. And it just it feels like a time of no like where all of the all of the things that we're dealing with now obviously we're romanticizing it, you know, and saying yeah, we didn't, as young people watching these shows, it didn't feel as pressing as things do now. But um, yeah, I, I feel what you're saying. Is there- also, there was, there was like routine in it. Like yeah. it was on every single week at this time. Everyone from school would have watched it. And if you missed it, you missed it. Oh, end of the world. Like you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't go back and rewatch. No. Um, is there any show that you're watching now that is contemporary? that you're feeling that same kind of sense of comfort about? I mean, I'm a little bit behind um, on this one, but I've just finished Shit's Creek. Oh, so good. And it's, just, it's so pure. It's so wholesome. Um, you know, I, I actually watched the first season of it once and was like, I, I don't really, you know, whatever this is, I don't really get it. Mm. But I love, I love how queer it is. I love that homophobia doesn't exist in, in the world of that show, even though it's, you know, all set in a small town. This is something that I really wish more TV creators and film creators would do. And, I'm, you know, before we finish, I'd like your thoughts on it as well. I suspect they'll be the same as mine. Um, because I also watched, when it was on, I watched The 100, which is a oh, yeah. kind of dystopian set in the future YA. Um, it, was made, it was based on a YA novel. And it's about a time 100 years in the future where people are living in a post-apocalyptic world. But the writers of that show, and there's, look, like all shows, it's got some of its problems. But the writers of that show swore from the outset that they would never depict sexual violence on screen and they wouldn't mm. make a big deal of women being in leadership roles. And actually most of the people in leadership roles in the in the show are women. And you just never have to kind of, particularly as a female viewer, wade through that disappointment of loving a show and being like, oh, but this week I had to watch a rape scene, you know, mm. or this week I had to deal with the the female leader being told that she's incapable of leadership it just it's so nice to have it not exist and there's yeah. so many people who will insist even as they did when we mentioned game of thrones before but even as they did in a show like game of thrones which literally has fucking dragons in it and white <laughs> walker zombies oh well you've got to have the sexual violence because that's what would be realistic mm. yeah and and you know that if a woman needs to overcome something, it has to be sexual violence. Like they just, mm. it's just so lazy. So lazy. It's so yeah. lazy. Um, you know, and I'm not saying like there are some some mediums where it is it is a, a, an appropriate storyline and they're, they're, they're bringing, um, you know, a, a nuanced perspective to it. But just how um, gratuitous, you know, some mm. of those scenes, the way they're shot, like, and even, you know, being on set for those things, it's just, it's just uncomfortable and awful for everyone. The experience mm. of making it is awful. The experience of watching it is awful. Mm. And yet it's so it's, essential to the storyline. You know, it's so brave. It is just so brave. Yeah. 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 Well, on that very joyful note, <laughs> the joyful note, of course, being that we need to make more television that wraps us in a warm blanket and less television that, uh, you know, allows people to voyeuristically titillate themselves in violence. Mm-hmm. Um Laura Naj, it has been an absolute pleasure and delight to speak to you. I have learned a lot and I am I'm just very intrigued by this new world of ASMR that I have to explore. And I think that actually it's going to be really, really helpful to a lot of people. So congratulations and well done. 
Well, thank you so much. And congratulations on How, to, How We Love. I'm so excited to read it. Thank you. Thank you so much. listening to the Big Sister Hotline with me, your host, Clementine Ford, and my guest this week was Laura Nage, a filmmaker and podcaster whose most recent work, Pillow Talk, is now available to listen to on Audible. If you'd like to email the hotline, you can do so at bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And also, another shout out to my Patreon supporters. Thank you all so much for being there and for helping a content creator like me to do this work. You can sign up to Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford, but also you don't have to if you don't want to. Maybe just review the show and let me know what you think of it. In the meantime, I hope that you're all getting the Taylor Swift on and I hope you have a bloody excellent week. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.